Moses did not know until he was 80 years old exactly what lay before him. Of course, he had been born into a Hebrew family, a family like many others in that situation, for whom the Pharaoh had ordained death to their children, especially their male children. And yet, uh, being an infant, of course, he did not know exactly what lay before him. I'm sure his parents uh, taught him to some extent, and as the Holy Spirit would lead them, that uh, the Lord had important things for him to do and that he should not desert his people. Uh, Though he was raised in the household of the Egyptian princess, nevertheless, he really did not know what lay before him. Some have called him the prince of Egypt, the inheritor of the kingship. There's no guarantee that that was true, but certainly there seemed to lie before him great things, uh, great responsibilities, high office in maybe the greatest country of the world of his day. And then having uh, that kind of uh, feeling that maybe the Lord uh, would, would use him in that office and help his native people, the Israelites, he went out and actually killed an Egyptian who was abusing one of his Egyptian countrymen. But uh, it turned out that that was not well received either by the Israelites or by the Egyptians, and he had to flee to Midian. And there he settled down to another 40 years or so of his uh, domestic life, having a family there, having a home that he could relate with, although, of course, he was separated from his birth parents, but having also flocks and an occupation there, and it seemed to him that was going to be his life. But still, he did not know what lay, as it were, just around the corner. And then he saw a bush burning on the side of Mount Horeb, And uh, having been trained in all the learning of the Egyptians, uh, having developed a curiosity for things scientific, he said, I must go and take a look at this. Uh, This is not something that uh, has come into my purview in my education and other situations, not even as a shepherd. And so I'll go look. And there he entered into the presence of God. And uh, entering into the presence of God, he began a conversation with God, certainly something very unexpected to him. But the import of that congregation was that the Lord said, Moses, you may not have known what you were going to do, what was going to happen to you the first 40 years of your life or even the second 40 years of your life. But now I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to explain to you what's going to happen. And uh, so we find Moses then absorbed in this most amazing conversation and in an experience that really had never happened to him, not just because it was somewhat miraculous and it was a meeting with God that he had never had before, but also because of God saying, now, this will take place and this will take place and you will do this and ultimately you will see to the salvation of my people Israel. Moses learns there at the burning bush that he is standing on holy ground. He is, amazingly, in the presence of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Something that he could not have anticipated, and yet something that wonderfully now takes place in his life, and he is not slain, he is not killed. 
even though probably his parents had told him that no one could see God and live, that no one could interact with God and stand it being sinful, being inadequate, being unacceptable. And yet, here he is. The Lord now calls him to leave the relative comfort of home, family, and flocks in order to shepherd God's people out of Egypt, through the desert, and into the promised land. He gives him the authority of his sacred name. He is, of course, God. And the the word for God, Elohim, is often seen in the passage. But he is also aware that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Yahweh or Jehovah. And then God enriches that further by telling him a, a deeper name in terms of I am that I am. The people will ask who has sent me. And you can say it's God. You can say it's Yahweh. Or you can say it's I am that has sent you. This name, this latter name, being a a name that uh, stresses God's uniqueness. He's the only God. That he is an eternal God. And that he is the God who has power over all things. That in reality there are no other gods, certainly not the gods of Egypt. And now he will deal with that. In returning away from Midian and back to that land from which he had fled Sometime before. Now, as we look at today's passage, God lays out for Moses his future and the Israelites' future, and to a certain extent, the future of Egypt as well. And there are certain elements here that I think we all can appreciate and look at. And I've uh, used some alliteration here to uh, help us perhaps memorize these things to a certain extent. There is, uh, in the first place, affliction and abundance. And then there is conference, consultation, and confrontation. There also is welcome and worship. And finally, resistance and regret. And those are our four points today. We begin with uh, affliction and abundance. The Israelites were an afflicted people. When they had first come down to Egypt, uh, their number being 70 or so people, they had experienced abundance. The country that they had left was in famine. The people were suffering. And though Jacob and his family had some abundance, uh, you can't spend silver and gold always to get what you need. If there's no food to buy... Well, you have your silver and you have your gold, but that's about it. But having come to Egypt, then they were fed. And, of course, they were feted by Joseph. Uh, They were given a a land in which to grow their crops. They had uh, people all around them who were supportive of them for Joseph's sake. It was a time of abundance. But then they sank ultimately into affliction once again. As the Egyptians became alarmed by their growth in numbers, as the Egyptians feared that uh, they might join with their enemies, that they might uh, be participants in some sort of coup or overthrow, they became slaves in the land of Egypt. And this is where God enters the picture with Moses. It uh, surely is true that Moses understood that the Israelites were an afflicted people, although he hadn't himself really experienced that affliction, at least up until this time. 
And uh, even his life in Midian was, again, as we've said, with flocks and family and so forth. So he, he wasn't really suffering there. But God says, I'm going to send you to a people whom I have heard cry out to me. A people who are in great distress, but a people upon whom I have set my love, even before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A people that I have called out for my name. A people for whom I have great plans, and Moses, you're to figure in those plans also. Furthermore, God says that uh, though they are now afflicted, and though you have experienced some degree of abundance in your life, whether it was in Egypt or in Midian, uh, I'm going to provide for them a great abundance. First of all, and you have to jump to the end of the passage, uh, God says the Egyptians will hand over to you items of gold and items of silver and clothing and so forth, and, uh, and you will have that as well. But God also is saying to them, I'm sending you to a land that is best described as a land uh, that flows with milk and honey. In other words, an abundant land. So you will leave Egypt with uh, significant wealth. You will no doubt travel through some hard times, but I'm sending you to a place of great abundance. Your affliction will turn to abundance. And uh, we can say at least at this point that the fleeing Israelites will not leave Egypt empty-handed. They will, as the old song says, go from rags to riches. Be assured that the slavery of the Israelites was not benign, but harsh. Earlier in Exodus, we read the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. If there's any doubt that the Israelites were an afflicted people, a suffering people, a such description as we've just read should put that out of our minds. And we might ask ourselves, why did God allow affliction to come upon the Israelites? Was not Abraham the friend of God? Were not Jacob and, and uh, his father Isaac also close to God? How could it be that God would allow affliction to come upon them? Well, let us begin by saying that uh, affliction in any respect, all affliction, in other words, can be linked to sin. Now, there are greater purposes involved, and not all of affliction is because of our sins, but we have to begin right there. Uh, we've been reading in our devotions at home about Job, and uh, he was uh, a very rich and wealthy man, but uh, fell on very difficult times. His wealth was taken away, his family was taken away, his bodily health was taken away, and uh, he said, I can't figure this out. If I am in favor with God, if I'm living the kind of life that God would have me to live, why is this happening to me? I'm a righteous man. I'm a good man. I do all kinds of good deeds. And it will take the rest of the, the book of Job for that great man at last to say, I realize I'm not the perfect man the, the great and just man that I thought I was. I'm not sorry that I've done the good things that I did, but I do have to repent in sackcloth and ashes. I'm a sinful man. And if God chooses to bring affliction upon me, I cannot say to him, as I've been saying for the past chapters, that uh, I don't deserve it, that I deserve better than that. 
I realize that that's a, a false idea to take. So begin with that when we talk about affliction, that uh, affliction is related to sin, and we can't escape that. But God does have greater purposes, and I'll not try to go through all those things today, but simply to quote you from Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In verse 71, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Whatever the other purposes that God may have had for this people, certainly it was to strengthen them spiritually, to bring them to that place spiritually that they had kind of abandoned and forgotten about, that the statutes of God and the the purpose of God in their lives had now to come into greater focus and greater meaning. Now, indeed, God was working with all of these nations that we read about, the Hittites, the Amorites, the uh, Perizzites, the various nations that were there that just generally are called Amorites. He said there's going to be a delay in this, but we might say, well, God could have amply provided for the Israelites while he was dealing with this other people. And yet God says, first of all, there's to be a kind of comparison between you and them. Uh, They've had it well for 400 years or so. Of course, we don't know all the details of their history and their ups and downs and so forth. But here's Israel suffering, and here are these wicked nations carrying on their lives. And God says, you need to make that comparison. You need to see that I'm going to take you and put you in their place, but not just in their place of idolatry and wickedness, but put you where they are so that you may be my people and live for me. And unless we go through this uh, long period of comparison and of change, you'll not appreciate what it means to be redeemed. And you'll not appreciate what lies before you, what God expects of you. He doesn't want you to be the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the various ones there. He wants you to be different. He wants you to be a godly people. He wants you to be a people for his name, a people who reflect Elohim and Yahweh and I am That's the people that you're going to be, and you're going to be a light to the whole world for that reason. So although affliction certainly is related to sin, and the Israelites were suffering for their sins, and though God has other purposes that are involved, it's this grand and glorious end that God has in sight for his people. And we need to realize that when we go through some of the things that we go through, that God has a place for us, and he has a witness for us to make. And he's going to replace the wicked with us, maybe sooner, maybe later, but he's going to do that. But notice here in the passage that God promises his people abundance in the place of affliction. You'll not leave Egypt empty-handed. You'll have abundance there. And then what I have for you just over the horizon is more abundance. And then beyond that, well, it hasn't even entered into your heart and mind. And so I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 2.9, which is a quotation really from Isaiah 63.4. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. What the Israelites received from the Egyptians, items of silver, items of gold, items of clothing, and no doubt other precious things, were meant not to glorify themselves, not so that they could say, look how rich we are now, 
Nor later on was it that they could say, uh, we have uh, replaced the various nations that God has cast out because we're better than they are. Rather, God is giving this abundance to them that they might glorify him. And so he's given to us whatever he's given to us by way of prosperity. The good things of our lives are not so that we may boast ourselves and how deserving we are, how great we are, but so that we may glorify God with the things that he has given to us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15 The apostle says, therefore, all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause what? May cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. May I tell you that uh, he wrote that, yes, for us, for the people of his day, but he wrote it for those those, uh, Israelites in Egypt who never really heard of it or, or thought of it. But that's why. God was blessing them, that they might glorify him. And again, in replacing these other nations, they were to be evidence of the mercy and the glory and the provision of God. Well, we glorify him using these temporal blessings, but we should never think that that's the end of it. For just as we said, there's something else over the horizon. So there is real treasure that's waiting for us in heaven. You know the passage, Matthew 6 Verses 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. I ask you today, as you're thinking, well, maybe God will bless us with uh, prosperity and abundance. And maybe that's the, the nature of the land in which we live, a, a land of great prosperity and riches, though it looks like that's being taken away from us at the moment. But God says, don't make your treasure on earth. To the, the Israelites, he said, don't make your treasure in Egypt or as you leave Egypt or don't make your treasure the promised land. Let your treasure be in heaven where The glory of God and the greatness of God will be yours to employ and to enjoy forever and forever. And you won't worry about silver or gold in heaven or milk and honey in heaven. What you will have is everything forever and ever. Affliction and abundance. That's what lay before Moses. Moses, you've known little of affliction, but you're going to enter into some of that. And as you go through the desert, you'll find it's there too. But ultimately, you will find the abundance that God promises to his people. I will replace your afflictions with the abundance, the abundance of God, the abundance of heaven, the abundance that can never be taken away from you. Well, that's our first point. Then there's this matter of conference and confrontation. It's an amazing thing that we can confer with God that we can confer with one another about God. God says, let's reason together. You know the the verse in Isaiah, it's a salvation verse in many ways. But come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, this will be as white as snow. But God is saying there, let's converse all of our lives. I don't think that that's something that Moses had really experienced, certainly not in the first 40 years. Certainly not uh, very much, if at all, in the land of Midian, although the, uh, the father-in-law Jethro was said to be a priest of God. 
but to really confer with God, to have a conference with God, to think things through with God. What a glorious and wonderful opportunity. And God is saying to Moses there at the burning bush, you and I are going to reason together, Moses, uh, not just this one time, uh, not just in, in those uh, interesting, miraculous incidents of Egypt, not just on your way through the desert, uh, not just in terms of being with the people who actually do go into the land, uh, not just in, in terms of, of time and history, but we're going to reason together, you and I, forever. We're going to confer and talk together and go through things together. And when this world is over with, we'll not stop reasoning together and consulting together about it. But note this, that uh, in this life anyway, where there is a conference, where there is consultation with God, there's also confrontation with those who are opposed to God. You know, today uh, there are always some peace conferences going on somewhere. They're gathering ministers from various nations. They're gathering around for the World Economic uh, Forum. They're gathering together to try to stop the war in this place or the war in that place. There are always peace talks going on. But uh, generally speaking, those talks have to do with confrontation. Either the confrontation has taken place and people are fighting each other, or they're tired of fighting and they want to figure a way to get out of it. Moses uh, Here's the Lord's <clears throat> the Lord say in terms of what he is to relate to the Pharaoh. He says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And you see, there's, there's your con, con, uh, consultation. He has met with us. Now, Moses had uh, two parties in the earthly sense with whom he had to consult as well as with the Lord himself. He had to uh, consult with the Israelites. God says, go and gather the elders together. And uh, later on, he has the, the people gathered and, and talking about what's going to happen and what they should do. So he has this, uh, this consultation, this reasoning. But remember that God, that God says, I'll go with you, Moses. I'll be with you all the time. And as you consult with the elders, as you consult with the Israelites in general, I'll be there to give you what to say to them and uh, give you the power of God that will persuade them to follow my plan and my purpose. And then, of course, there was the con confrontation with the Pharaoh and uh, with his advisors and God uh, saying to them that uh, you listen to what uh, we're doing here and, and what God is doing and you should respond to it and, and, and give your uh, approval to it. Of course, Pharaoh was unwilling to do that. But he had these two parties on earth to consult with in addition to God. <clears throat> but note this, through Moses, God would meet with the Israelites and he would cause them to heed his word. That's what he said. They will heed you. Why? Because God is with them by his spirits with them. He'll persuade them. And then uh, God will confront Pharaoh. And Pharaoh will do just the opposite. Pharaoh will say, no way. You're not leaving. I will not let you go. But the command of God cannot be reversed. The command of God cannot fail to be accomplished. He will meet with Pharaoh and he will say to him, God now is consulting with you. God is now talking to you. Won't you reason with God, Pharaoh? Won't you see that your way is not the right way? that your way is the way of death, that your way will not do the world any good. 
God consults and confronts. And then God will never negotiate with the wicked. He won't negotiate with the Israelites. He didn't say, get together, form a committee, and uh, you take a vote, and if enough of you agree, we'll all leave Egypt. He says, you will leave Egypt. Let me persuade you to do that. He doesn't negotiate with them. He simply tells them what his plan and purpose is, and he changes their hearts so that they will do what God says. And then, of course, he'll never negotiate with the Egyptians, with the Pharaoh. He simply says, do it. Do it this way. Pharaoh says, I will not let it happen. And God says, it will happen. His command is there. He doesn't negotiate with the wicked. And I urge you today, don't try to negotiate with God. Uh, That's what Jacob did when he left home. And he got out to Bethel and he lay down. And God showed him the angels ascending and descending. And he says to God, you know, if, if you'll continue to show me your way and be good to me, then I'll be your, your servant. God didn't negotiate with Jacob. He sent him on over there to, uh, to Uncle Laban and life in Haran, and it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't good. And uh, he says to Laban, you changed my wages ten times. I don't like it over here very much. God says to, to Jacob, come back to where you need to be. You can leave that. You can leave that behind and come back. And I'll take care of you, not because we've worked out something, but because this is my plan and my purpose. But see that the Lord is aggressive in this sense. He he goes to people and he says, this is how it's going to be. And that's really what a covenant is. A covenant is when God says, this is how it's going to be. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's God's initiative. It's God's aggression, if you will, to accomplish his purpose. Yes, uh, we among ourselves decide how we're going to react to what God says, but the, the real response can only be, Lord, here's your servant. That's what uh, Mary said to the angel as uh, he told her about the birth of Christ. As, as, it, as it is supposed to be, Lord, behold your handmaiden, behold your servant. Each party will consult among themselves and they'll know how to react. God persuades us. And he confirms that he will bring us to his will and victory. And even the devil, if you want to compare Pharaoh to the devil, even even the devil cannot have his way. Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise all partook of uh, of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And just as there's ample evidence that Pharaoh himself was destroyed in his pursuit of the Israelites, the devil's going to be destroyed too. There's this uh, confrontation that we can have with God, this, uh, this conversation, but it always leads to, to uh, some confrontation whereby we stand with God or we don't, where we win with God or we don't, where his way is the way that's accomplished or it's not. Well, then thirdly, we come to uh, welcome and worship. Uh, When my parents uh, started working at a school in the Blue Ridge Mountains of of Virginia, uh, they went to a a little store there, and uh, they wanted to buy some eggs. And uh, the the man in the store, he didn't know them. So he said, uh, well, the eggs are such and such a price. And they said, well, that's... That's, that's too much. You know, we have to live over here at Blue Ridge School. And the guy said, oh, you work at Blue Ridge School. He said, well, then the eggs are a different price for you. 
uh, you see, the welcome was different. And uh, the welcome will either cause you to rejoice or it'll cause you to be upset. And so it was with the, uh, the Israelites. God, didn't, God was not like the spider that, that said, step into my parlor. I'll welcome you that way. He said, step into the life that I have to give you. Now, neither, neither the Egyptians or the Israelites were particularly of a welcoming mind. When uh, Moses killed that Egyptian fellow years before, they said, you're just causing more trouble for us. And when he came back again after this uh, time with God in conversation and consultation, uh, they basically said the same thing. You know, you're going to cause us a lot of trouble, Moses. Uh, they weren't of a particularly welcoming mind. Of course, Pharaoh was not of a welcoming mind. But when we see that uh, God welcomes us into his glory, into his presence, then our desire at that point is not to play around the situation, but to worship him. And my point is simply this, that when you have a, a real welcome, a warm welcome, a, a welcome that, uh, that you want and that, that blesses you, you'll worship as well. <clears throat> Here was the God of the fathers, the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was not a God who was a stranger to them. This was a God that they had heard about, but they'd never really welcomed into their lives. And they were afraid that he wouldn't welcome them. And God says, that's not the way it's going to be. You welcome me, I'll welcome you. If you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. He said, Moses, you go and tell Pharaoh that I want to take this people out into the wilderness. Three days journey out. It took much longer than three days to get out to where they needed to go. They didn't do that. But if they had, if Pharaoh had said, okay, go on out there, it would have taken them weeks to get a million or so people out and to offer sacrifices out there. But the point is that God wanted that sacrifice made to him. Why? Because sacrifice talks about atonement, the forgiveness of sins. It talks about fellowship with God. In, in the later Mosaic law, there would be sacrifices that had to do with the forgiveness of sins and sacrifices that had to do with fellowship, but they were kind of all rolled into one at this point. And uh, God says, I want this people to sacrifice to me, to have their sins forgiven, and to have true fellowship with me. If they'll welcome me, they'll also worship me. God bids us welcome him in faith and worship via the sacrifice of Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. And that's the whole idea here. My people need to draw near to me, Pharaoh. Don't stand in their way. And if you want to join them, that's fine. But don't stand in their way. There's welcome and there's worship. And they really go together. If you welcome God and he welcomes you, you will worship him. One last thing, and that's repentance and regret. The king of Egypt, as we know, will resist the Lord's command. Why? Because he's an enemy of God. You're either on God's side or you're on the other side. If God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against us, how can we survive? How can we find any 
purpose and meaning in life. The king of Egypt resists God. And what happens? God says, I'm going to strike him. I'm going to strike him because he's resisting me. Now, he might strike him anyway for other sins and other circumstances. But in this circumstance, he has to accept my way or be stricken. God says, I'm about to strike him. God's not, uh, I'm sorry, Pharaoh is not the only one who resists God. The Israelites, again, were not too keen on, on leaving Egypt. And when they finally did Egypt, they said, oh, we wish we could go back there. It was so wonderful back there. They were resistant. And even Moses resisted a little bit. He said, I can't speak. Uh, I'm no good at, at getting the words across. God says, I'll, I'll figure out how to do that. I'll send Aaron to help you out. And Moses still was not too happy about that. And the fact is that we all tend to resist God. And we have to be brought to that place where we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. But notice this, that God is long-suffering. He'll not strike us down without waiting upon us. Second Peter 3.19, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering. It didn't take him long to persuade the Israelites, bring them to that place. It never worked with Pharaoh himself. He, he stood in the way. You can't go down to the ocean down here and tell the tide, you know, having king tides now. And they're flooding the, the shore villages and so forth. But you can't stand there and say, stay back. It'll come anyway. You can't resist it. You can't resist the will of God. It will take place. Better to be on his side than on the other side. And there is such a thing as a time limit. I don't know it, but God knows it. He said those people that live in Canaan... I'll give him 400 years. And he did, but the time came and he said, time's up, no more. It didn't take that long for the Israelites to get out of Egypt, but God has time limit. The Bible says, he who often being reproved stiffens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. If you resist God, you will regret it. It may be in the short term, it may be a small thing or it may be a big thing. If it's for salvation, you keep resisting God, you'll regret it. But even if it's in your life as a believer, in your life in serving God, if you say, well, I, I'm not going to this or that thing that you've called me to do, you'll regret it. It's always better to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'll get through it. I don't know what will take place, but I won't resist anymore. Moses found that out. Moses found out that if you'll just yield yourself to God... You can take a, a, a huge population out of Egypt and take them through the wilderness and take them through many trials and, and sufferings and bring them at last to that land that God has promised. And I'm sure Moses, although he was prevented from entering the promised land himself, I'm sure as he stood there on the mount and, and looked over into the promised land and he said, how did I ever make it this far? How did it ever happen this way? Well, one answer was, I didn't resist God. There were times when I wanted to, and times when I did a little bit. But ultimately, I accepted God's will and purpose. And that's what he's saying to us today. Don't resist. If you do, you'll regret it. Are you suffering affliction? God says, I have abundance for you. 
If you are not sure about things, reason with God. Consult with God. If you're afraid that uh, you'll not be welcome, remember that God will receive you, will not cast you out. And that uh, as you are welcome with him, you'll want to worship him all the days of your life and for a timeless eternity. What a wonderful thing to know. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this word today that encourages us so much. Uh, We don't know always what's around the corner, over the horizon, but we know that you know, and we know that you have it all worked out for us, uh, that uh, you'll see us through affliction, you'll see us into abundance, you'll see us, Lord, to that place uh, where we have you in, in fellowship with us through Christ our Savior, and that we'll never regret it if we give our lives to you. May that be true of every person here today, Lord, not to regret, but to rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.